Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our Heavenly Father, your word is so good. It gives light to our eyes, it revives our souls. It is a delight. And yet uh, we know we are often preoccupied. Uh, often our, we're blinded uh, to its truth and your glory in its pages. Often our, our minds find it hard to focus. But we pray that we would know the good of your word, that you would have mercy on us, that you would pour your spirit on us so that we would understand it and believe it, we would know you and uh, in trusting Jesus, know salvation and be equipped uh, to serve you. Help me to speak it truthfully and clearly in my weakness. And we pray, help us to know you because we have heard you speak. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, you might have thought uh, with the description of Philip going off and preaching in the towns of Judea, that uh, things have settled down now for the believers, that you know that uh, problems with Stephen just are kind of flash in the pan. But of course, 9-1 tells us that's not so. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul is still a threat, and a very real threat, seeking to extend the reach of his hatred for Christians beyond Jerusalem, getting authority to attack the followers of the way in Damascus. And there's evidence that the high priest under the Roman administration had that authority, was responsible for, in a sense, maintaining peace and good order amongst uh, the Jewish uh, religious community outside Palestine. Now the believers in Damascus already know he's coming. We see that verse 14 and 21, that his reputation has preceded him and his well coming is causing fear and concern. But as we've heard, such hatred will come to nothing. Because what we see in Acts 9 is that Jesus loves his church and is active to protect and grow it. And that is a wonderful thing. Uh, when you think of the travails of the church, its ups and downs, the issues it faces internally in maintaining peace and purity, the issues it faces externally, it's wonderful, isn't it, that, to know that Jesus loves his church and is active to protect and grow it. Spreading the gospel is not the outcome of some human scheme. It's not to fulfil a human agenda. It's the work of God, Father, Son and Spirit. It's the expression of Jesus' determination to be the light to the nations he is prophesied to be in Isaiah. Uh, you may uh, remember the servant songs in Isaiah, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53, uh, maybe 61, and, yeah. But, and, and, and they've already surfaced in Luke's account. But in Isaiah 42, it says, this is what God, the Lord, says of the servant. 
the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. Notice that God is affirming he is the God of all the earth because he's the creator. And he says, I the Lord have called you, that's the servant in righteousness, I will take hold of your hand, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And in Isaiah 49 he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Judah and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus never stepped outside Palestine, but it was always God's intention that he would be the light of the world, that he would bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And Jesus knows that. That phrase, to the ends of the earth, Acts 1, 8. The drive, direction and effectiveness of gospel preaching, of gospel sharing, is from the Lord Jesus, the light of the world. As you hear of Paul's conversion and call, and as you think of his enormous impact, and by the way, I'm going to use Saul and Paul interchangeably, I can't get my head around it. The name changes in Acts 13, 9 in the record, uh, you know, uh, if you're interested, but as you hear of Paul's conversion, think of his impact. You know, taking the gospel into Asia and then into Europe and then to Rome. His impact beyond his lifetime uh, through the letters he wrote that continue to inform generations of what it is to believe in Jesus. As you think of Paul's conversion and call and the impact of that over the centuries, think, think to yourself, whose strategy was Saul's conversion a part of? You know, was there some committee in some upper room in Jerusalem thinking, oh, we need some good cross-cultural preachers. Um, you know, we'll just have to arrange a few interviews, see who we've got. Yes, yes, Saul, he's obviously a candidate. No, 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 who could have equipped and prepared such an effective preacher? As we'll see, somebody who can get knocked off his donkey three days in the dark and preach. Who would have thought of this? Giving relief to the church, bringing the gospel to the nations through saving the persecutor. It's worth remembering, isn't it, that the mission of the gospel is Jesus' mission. And it's worth remembering that his call of Saul Worth remembering his call of Saul when you think that commending the gospel is too hard for you, that all the intellectual giants are ranged against us. Or when you're crippled by the responsibility to get the message out and you just see your inability. Or when you think of the frustration of our plans or the waning of our influence, when you're tempted to think that that means a setback for the gospel, for God's agenda. Or when you think the work of God in our society is limited to what we're doing or what we know of. 
It's worth remembering, isn't it? Jesus' call of Saul. I'm sure the believers in Damascus were praying protection and the apostles were probably still praying for bold effectiveness. And Stephen, we know, prayed for his persecutors to be pardoned. But who was praying for Saul? Who was building their plan for the evangelisation of the world around him? As Andrew has already hinted, in Acts we will see over and over again the God who can do more than we can ask or think. And remembering that it doesn't depend on you, that the Lord Jesus has never backed away from being the light of the world, never ceased to be active for his people, never ceased to be ensuring that his gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Remembering that is actually a great source of gospel resilience. It stops you from being overwhelmed. It helps you clarify what you're responsible for and what you are not. And it doesn't leave you with a burden that will crush you, nor with a sense of failure, even when people don't respond to you. Because you know Jesus is on the job and it is his mission and he works in ways that you would never imagine. Well, the story is probably familiar to many of you, this story of uh, Saul getting knocked off his donkey. And part of the reason for that is Luke tells it three times. You'll have this story again in Acts 22 and Acts 26. And that's a way of emphasising the importance of what's happening here. In Luke, repetition is emphasis. And he tells it three times. Not because Acts is a biography of Saul or Paul. You'll actually find more biographical details in Saul's letters. It's because this is the story of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And this is a key moment in the Lord Jesus making that happen. So Paul starts off from Damascus, for Damascus. And remember, he's not doing that because he is irreligious. He's heading to Damascus because he is a sincere Jew, strict in his observance of the law and tradition, well-informed, zealous, a man who's actually proud of his heritage and effort. He says, well, he relates in a sense his pedigree in Philippians, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He is a zealous religious man. And yes, somebody pretty confident of his own goodness, his own righteousness in persecuting these blaspheming Christians who absurdly claim that Jesus who died a criminal's death is Paul's God's Christ, his God's Saviour. Now, we, we've lost the offence of that. But it's an absurd claim, isn't it? That the glorious Messiah, who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, who would re-establish the kingdom, would be somebody hanging on a tree. But as he neared Damascus, something happens. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, the initiative is clearly Jesus, transparently so. And notice he addresses Saul by name and with a question. Why do you persecute me? Saul learns quickly that this one whom he calls Lord is Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. He learns that this one he called Lord is Jesus and in that moment he knows three things about Jesus. Just in that moment, three things. He knows that Jesus is alive to be seen and spoken with. Oh, he knows Jesus' relationship to his people, to his church, that he is inseparable from them as Jesus himself taught in Matthew 25, as you did it to the least of these, my brethren. You did it also to me. And we should note this well, shouldn't we? Jesus is never detached from his people. He is never absent or disinterested. And later on, Paul, in a sense, will build on this. He will speak of Jesus' relationship to his people as his people being Jesus' bride, the goal of his work, the object of his affections. He'll speak of Jesus' people being Jesus' body. He knows now that Jesus' church is at the centre of his affections and plans in that moment. And thirdly, Paul knows that Jesus is Lord. And as the Lord, the one with the right to command and expect to be obeyed. Jesus gives Paul instruction. Get up and go into the city and Paul knows he must obey. And both Luke and Paul are very clear. This is a real event. This is a real appearance of the risen Jesus, not some inner vision or psychological projection. Sometimes you'll read that, that Saul was tormented by the violence he was perpetrating in his soul. And what we have here is a psychological crisis resolved with an external projection of an encounter with Jesus. That's not the way. Paul understands it. Speaking of the resurrection appearances, he could say of Jesus. And remember, resurrection appearances are of the real Jesus in a body. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is a real experience of the risen Jesus. Oh, his companions experienced something as this as well. They hear a sound, they see a light, but they don't see or hear a person. Jesus is selective. He is speaking to Paul. And this experience for him is devastating. He can see nothing and has to be led by the hand into Damascus. This light has plunged him into darkness and it's an experience that now consumes him. Three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. He has taken up all his thinking, all his emotions are engaged with what he's heard. Well, Paul won't, Jesus won't leave Paul in the dark. 
He takes the initiative to send Ananias. And again, clearly, this is Jesus' work. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. Jesus is active to protect and provide for his people, to promote the works of the gospel, to bring it to the ends of the earth. And he tells Ananias to go and find Paul in that straight street and that Paul's praying and that he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, Ananias, in a sense, then seeks reassurance. You know, does Jesus really know the character of the man he is sending Ananias to? And yes, Jesus really does. Ananias' response is really a query. Are you serious about that? But in response, Jesus reveals his plans for Saul. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul is Christ's chosen instrument, his chosen vessel. And interestingly, that's the same word Paul will use of himself in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, speaking of the gospel, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He sees himself as someone who is just filled and used by the Lord Jesus in his glorious work. Jesus is the one who will make sure the gospel will go beyond the Jews, beyond even those bastard Jews, the Samaritans, to the ends of the earth. And notice the order there in verse 15. Gentiles, the non-Jews, come first, but the people of Israel are not excluded. And Jesus is not embarrassed to ask someone to suffer for him, to see suffering for him as part of the job description, part of the disciples' lot. And we'll see that Paul did not see such suffering for Jesus' name as a punishment. It's just part of being his. Well, Ananias goes and he addresses him as brother, relating to him on the basis of Jesus' word to him. He makes it very clear again, his coming is because of Jesus. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me. We all know, don't we, again and again that this is Jesus' work and that Jesus will be the source of Paul's healing and inclusion in God's people. The record of what Ananias said here is abbreviated and selective. In Acts 22, we see that he also said to Saul, What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Calling on his name. Ananias makes it clear that Jesus is the one with authority to forgive. The authority to give the Spirit. The authority to bring light into Paul's darkness. To call on his name is to call on him as he is in his revelation of himself, the Lord. And Paul is so intensely engaged, so longing now for that light, that healing, so longing to know forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit that he's baptised before he eats. 
he had not been to camps. Right? He got up and was baptised and after taking some food, he regained his strength. If you came on camp, you'd think that Christian life revolves around food first. Now he's so engaged, he's baptised. Now Jesus has saved Paul. He's cleansed him from his sin and included him in God's new covenant people, brought him to see the light. Again, his conversion is not the result of some human argument, persuasion, cajoling. It's Jesus. And then verse 20, at once we see that Paul begins preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. He is already fulfilling his call, proclaiming Jesus' name, his revelation of himself. Now, how is it possible that Paul can proclaim Jesus from the outset? For Paul makes it very clear in Galatians that his gospel preaching was not dependent on other people. And it's worth asking this question so that you can see the extent of Jesus' work for his people. Right. So how is it that Paul can proclaim Jesus from the outset? Because in Galatians he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So for Paul there was no period of mentoring, no period of instruction, no Priscilla and Aquila to take him aside. He is straight away into proclaiming Jesus and he is effective in his preaching. He grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. How does this happen? Well, think of Paul's experience of what he's learned in Jesus revealing himself to him on the road of what he has learnt as he has pondered these things in his darkness, of what was confirmed to him when his sight is returned, of what he's learnt when he's forgiven and receives the Spirit on Jesus' authority. Think of what Paul has learnt. Think of that experience. It's hard not to believe the evidence of your eyes and ears, to dismiss your experience of being blind and recovering sight. So... Paul is fully engaged. You see, because of Jesus' action, Saul has had to admit that Jesus is alive and that he is Lord. And that means in that moment, in over those days as he turns it over, he's also had to admit that he's been wrong about Jesus, wrong about God, and perhaps hardest of all, wrong about himself. Let's think about each in turn, about what it means to know Jesus as Lord. Well, it means he's been wrong about Jesus. You see, the living Jesus can no longer be dismissed as a dead blasphemer or a failed messianic pretender. In that moment, Paul knows that the disciples are right about him. Jesus was the living Lord and Christ as they proclaimed in Acts 2 the one appointed by God to rule over all, the one God had sent to save his people. And if Jesus was the living Lord, then Paul also had to admit that Jesus has been telling the truth about himself, for God's vindicated him. Only the living God can raise the dead and exalt them to his right hand and give them the spirit to pour out. So God's vindicated Jesus. And that means 
Jesus really is the Son of God, sent from the Father, whose words were God's words, whose actions were God's actions, as Jesus himself said. Now, it means that Jesus has been telling the truth about his death. Can you imagine Paul sitting in the dark, thinking hard about that death, that so seemed to deny that Jesus was the Christ, for it was so shameful it was a cursed death. Sitting there in the dark, yet knowing beyond doubt that the Jesus his fellow Pharisees had mocked on the cross, who demanded that he come down from the cross to show that he was the Christ, sitting there in, dark, in the dark and knowing beyond doubt that Jesus staying on the cross was the Christ. Running through the scriptures in his head and he memorised large amounts of them, seeking to make sense of it, seeking help, praying to make sense of it. And then coming to see it was actually the death God willed for his Messiah a sacrifice to save his people, becoming a curse, as Paul says in Galatians 3, to spare his people the law's judgment. In the dark, he's had to admit that he's been wrong about Jesus. And in the dark, Saul also has to admit that he's been in the dark about God and his salvation. In being about wrong, in being wrong about Jesus, Saul, who boasted of his devotion to God, had to admit that he was wrong about God. Saul had thought God had hated and condemned Jesus. But he now knows that God, his God, the living God, the God of Israel, loves and has exalted Jesus. And being wrong about Jesus and being wrong about God Saul has to recognise that he has been wrong about himself. He saw that he had actually been hating the one God loved. He had called lies what God has shown was true. How could this be, he must think? How could he have got this so wrong, so wrong, that in attacking Jesus' people he was thinking he was righteous and Jesus' followers were the sinners, that he was honouring God and they were blaspheming, that he was right with God and they deserved judgement for their idolatrous blasphemies, worshipping a man, thinking that and now recognising it was entirely the other way round. The Lord had told him that actually he, Saul, was attacking the Lord Jesus, God's chosen. Why are you persecuting me? So Saul had now to see himself for who he was, the active, if ignorant, enemy of God, not righteous despite his zealous activity, not God's person despite his lineage, but outside God's family and deserving God's judgment as a sinner, a blasphemer himself who had used God's name to attack God's people, a violent man condemning the innocent. And he knew then his blindness was not just the effect of the brightness of the vision. It's actually God bringing home to him in his mercy Saul's reality. 
Saul's reality that he was ignorant of God, cut off from the light of God's presence, enduring the judgment of God. You see, Saul did know the scriptures. He knew in Deuteronomy 28, it says this, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and <coughs> do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then verse 28, The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness and confusion of mind. At midday you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. He knew he was under God's judgment in his darkness. He knew he was with those people who had to confess their sin in Isaiah where it says, Isaiah 59, we look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We look for justice, but find none for deliverance, but is far away, for our offences are many in your sight, and our, sin, our sins testify against us. In that blindness, Paul knew his own sin and knew its depths. The works of the law could not make him righteous, could not give him a good heart. He knew that he had a heart that under pretense of loving God was hating God, that when it sought to do God's will, just on its own, was opposing God. He knew that of himself, just as he knew the truth that Jesus was Lord. Never doubt the power of the gospel proclamation that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And making people confront that truth, that the Jesus they don't want to listen to is the Jesus who lives forever. As that truth works through people's minds. They actually do have to rethink everything. Who they are, who God is, who will win in his world. And then, of course, going on in receiving his sight, being forgiven by Jesus on the basis of Jesus' authority and re receiving the Spirit, Paul came to know more, didn't he? He knew what years later he was so pleased to proclaim as deserving of full acceptance as he wrote in 1 Timothy that Jesus had come into the world to save sinners. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, he writes, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. As those scales fell from his eyes, he knew that he was actually saved by mercy, by grace. And he knew Jesus was merciful and gracious. <laughs> that that's the way he is and the way he will be to all who turn on him. And he knew in himself the power and effectiveness of Jesus' death for sinners because his sins were washed away in receiving the Spirit and its attack on Jesus. That sin 
was dealt with. In receiving the Spirit, he knew that Jesus was the Lord who brought the new age, who fulfilled the scriptures, who was bringing what God had promised his people at the end, and he knew the freedom of God's grace. He had not chosen God. In fact, he'd been defying God. The Lord chose him. He knew for himself that the power and effectiveness of God's grace. Paul gets it all in his conversion. In that conversion, Jesus has equipped him for the ministry he has called him to. His conversion and call and equipping are inseparable. He acts on that call immediately in Damascus because he can. This is all of Jesus. He saved Paul. And he equipped Paul by revealing himself to him. And he has called Paul to that work for which he's been equipped. And so that you get some idea of the wonder and greatness of Jesus' provision for his people, when did this, when did Jesus thinking about the need, God's thinking about the needs of his people, about how he would fulfil his work, to be the light of the world. When did that actually start happen? When did Paul's equipping start? Was Paul just an afterthought? Was, you know, Jesus been up in heaven for some time and yeah, he sees that there's a bit of trouble developing and he thinks, oh, look, I better intervene. That Paul is a pretty, you know, he's pretty able and capable. Left on that side, he's just going to cause trouble. Oh, oh look, I, I better do something. Does it start then? No. When was God already preparing to protect and provide for his people? Galatians 1. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God was thinking of the needs of his people and the gospel mission long before anybody had ever heard of Paul. Paul would be an effective witness because God has made Paul, Paul from birth. From his birth he has been equipping him. That's why we get a Paul who's fluent in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. That's why we get a Paul who is in a sense a citizen of Rome and can travel about Rome. God was at work in his parents or his grandparents who got that citizenship. That's why we have a Paul so well trained in the scriptures, trained at the feet of Gamaliel. A Paul who could know them, who could run through them in his head in the darkness, who could preach from them in the synagogue and refute his critics. A Paul who was trained in argument. A Paul who, from all that we can gather, apart from the thorn in the flesh and some problem with his eyes, is extraordinarily robust. We might, you know, think we train people. But praise the Lord, it's God who equips us for the work he calls us to do. And he equips us from conception. You know, God will put you in the place where you can do his work. No one can boast. 
get that. When you see what it meant for the light of the gospel to enter Paul's life, you also understand how in his conversion and call there was never going to be a time, never going to be a time where he was not equipped for it. God had been preparing Paul from birth. This is God's mission. Oh, and when you understand what it meant for the light of the gospel to enter Paul's life, you'll also see why there was never going to be a time when Paul would resent suffering for Jesus' sake. You know, when you hear Jesus say, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, you could have you know, I think, you know, this is kind of tit for tat, you know, some kind of vindictive punishment or something. You know, he's caused others suffer. I'm going to make him suffer, you know. But actually, that's not the case. You don't make those you love suffer just for suffering. And as I said, Paul did not see suffering for Jesus' name ever as a punishment. Philippians 3, remember, he said, whatever loss I had, I count as gain for the surpassing worth, right? For the surpassing worth of being found in Christ and having a righteousness not of my own, but one that comes through faith in Jesus. Colossians 1, he says this, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Hear that? I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. In fact, Paul says in Acts that it actually doesn't, doesn't figure in a sense one way or another as long as he fulfills his mission. Acts 20, uh, 22, now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. That's what you call a travel itinerary, right? Every city, the prisons and hardships. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Suffering for Paul because Jesus is being despised for his name's sake. Suffering is not something extrinsic to belonging to Jesus, something added on. No, Paul knows that this suffering is intrinsic. It is because he belongs to Jesus and that's worth everything. It's suffering that is his because he has received mercy to be reckoned as faithful. And so he is grateful for that mercy and he rejoices in his suffering. He knew what he deserved. He tasted judgment in the darkness of his blindness. Oh, and he knew what Jesus had promised him. For he knew the spirit that he received was the down payment on all that God had promised. And he knew mercy and love. He was assured of it. He could say in Galatians, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, the life I live in the flesh. You know, I live no longer. 
Now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That suffering was something he could rejoice in, something he was pleased to undergo, to bring honour to the name of Jesus, the name he was engaged to proclaim, the name that had saved him and the name which so many treat with contempt. Remember, I asked you the question, is the gospel you believe worth inviting others to believe, even if it makes suffering certain? Jesus thought so. He was saying suffering was certain for Paul, and he called him to himself. And you know, Paul, the believer, thought so. And he encourages other believers to think so too. Remember Romans 5, uh, where he says, We boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Uh, in the next few verses, uh, the brief record of Paul's preaching in Damascus and Jerusalem, we see the effectiveness of Jesus' call and the power of his provision for the spread of the gospel. We left in no doubt that Jesus' work will be effective. Paul starts as he'll continue preaching Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Psalm 2, the one to whom all the nations will submit. He shows from the scriptures. That's the proof that he offers in the synagogue that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul in his ministry demonstrates the truth of what he later teaches, isn't it? That how does the church grow? The ascended Lord Jesus gives gifts to men of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, to equip them so that the church will grow. He demonstrates that it's actually Jesus' work, the ascended Lord provides for and equips his church, building the church is Jesus' work. And as Paul continues, as Paul starts, so he continues. Remember 2 Corinthians 4, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And the greatness of this provision by Jesus is seen over and over again, isn't it? Century after century, in heart after heart, as we are moved to love Jesus by Paul's letters. Oh, and we also see that Paul's life takes on the character it will have from the beginning, don't we? His preaching arouses opposition, a determination to kill him both in Damascus and in Jerusalem and we'll see that he will experience the apostolic life of one of weakness and shame. The escape from Damascus in the basket is not a triumph. It's actually an acknowledgement of his weakness. Yet Paul will keep preaching boldly. He has gospel resilience because he knew above all the good of the gospel, its truth and power for himself, the son revealed in him. And he knew he was Jesus' servant in this work. And Jesus was the Lord over all, his loving saviour and the saviour of the world. That's why he could write to, to Timothy, who is in a sense coming to share that ministry, 1 Timothy, this is why we labour and strive, because we put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, 
and especially those who believe. Well, Jesus saves Paul. Jesus sends Ananias. Jesus equips Paul. Oh, there are others in this passage too. We shouldn't overlook them. Ananias, through whom Saul was received into the church in baptism, who had his doubts but just did what he was asked to do by Jesus. And, of course, Barnabas, to whom we'll return in chapter 11, uh, through whom relationship was established between Paul and the apostles, a relationship that would prove so valuable later when circumcision matters arise on Paul's second trip to Jerusalem. It's actually Barnabas's initiative under God that prevented isolation, the isolation of Paul from the apostles that prevented the separation of the Jewish and Christian churches. And he was just doing what he was asked. Love believes all things. He was encouraging. And that would take some encouragement because even when Paul is on your side, you know he will be a pain, don't you? You have formed coexistence with your Jewish neighbours in the synagogue. And Paul comes along and presses the cause of Jesus and where you had peace, <laughs> you're going to get conflict. We ought to welcome forceful evangelists and encourage them and not be embarrassed by them. We ought to be like Barnabas, encouraging them in the work that God has given them. And then, of course, this section closes in verse 31. Just a reminder that, again, it is God at work. He says, the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Notice that. It's not just the number of disciples in Jerusalem anymore, which was the case in the earlier summaries, but the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria. In the face of active and murderous opposition because of Jesus' action and through his spirit. Jesus' action, remember, that goes back to striking Ananias and Sapphira dead. The fear of the Lord. Right? Jesus' action now in saving Paul and through the spirit. This church is growing. God is saving. So whose work is the work of the gospel? Who do we put our trust in for the spread of the gospel and the protection and growth of Jesus' people? Well, to ask the questions to have the answer, isn't it? Jesus' people. Our trust is in Jesus, who acts without consulting us, who acts without being accountable to us, who acts for his people and acts to spread the gospel. And remember, you can't beat Jesus. He's not just alive from the dead. He can turn the persecutor into the preacher. So we should never despair of the spread of the gospel, never think that Jesus will not save his people. Oh yes, this passage reminds us of the goodness of the gospel too. Paul knows it, Paul shares it, he sees that the gospel can turn an enemy into a beloved follower. Oh yeah, we see life, forgiveness, the spirit coming through the gospel. And we're reminded 
that there is hostility to the gospel, but that hostility serves. Even when we don't know its exact purpose, it serves the spread of the gospel. We've seen that with those who were scattered by the persecution after Stephen, and actually we'll see it in the opposition that keeps Paul moving on. Paul's travels in these next few chapters may seem a bit random, but they actually get Paul to a point where we see how important it is, to a place where we see how important it is for him to be there. That gets him to Antioch, the right place, at the right time, to be sent to the ends of the earth. And it will get him there with the right experience to be that apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus is the one who is spreading the gospel throughout the world. He is the light of the world. And yes, everyone has their part to play by listening to Jesus and doing what he says, whether it's Ananias or Barnabas or Saul. But it is Jesus. So when you think about the gospel in our community, when you think about the state of the church in our community, if you're discouraged perhaps by its lack of influence, if you're discouraged by what seems to be a growing and powerful opposition, just remember Jesus. He loves his people. He is determined to be the light to the nations and he will bring his people to himself. So keep talking the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you, in your mercy, sent the Lord Jesus into the world to be the light to the nations, the one who will bring your salvation to the ends of the earth. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you saved Paul and you called him and sent him into the world with the gospel. We thank you that you gave him an experience of yourself, that conviction that you are Lord and that you are the merciful Lord who pardons and saves sinners, even those who are so hostile to you. We thank you that you have blessed us through Paul, that through his writings, your spirit-inspired writings, we have come to know for ourselves more and more of your grace and your might. And we pray that our confidence will always be in you to keep and save your people and to provide for us all that we need to be your people, to spread your gospel in this world until you return. Amen.